You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rusk. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rusk Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rusk AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Hello and welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Campbell, and today I'm chatting to Dr. Daniel Crosby, a well-known psychologist and behavioral finance expert in the United States who's written several books on the subject, including The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor. In today's episode, we're going to jump into a wide range of topics from what's been happening in the world of behavioral finance over the last few years to practical steps that you can take to improve your financial decision making. The ultimate goal of this conversation is to provide the listener, that's you, with actionable insights that you can use in your own lives. Let's jump in. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on the Australian Finance Podcast today. Kate, great to be back with you. It is wonderful to have you back. It has been a while since you've been on the show and we've got a lot of new listeners that have joined us in the last few years. So I was wondering if you could give us the the 30 second background to who you are and what your work is in the world of finance and psychology. Yeah, happy to. So I am a clinical psychologist by education. I, I trained to be a, a psychotherapist, uh, but about about 80% of the way through my, through my training as a doctor, I, I burned out and I said, you know, look, I, I love studying why people do the things that they do, but I don't want to do it in a medical context. And so my dad, who is a financial advisor, sort of said, well, hey, there's a ton of work, there's a ton of psychology in finance, which, you know, I had sort of never understood or supposed. And so that sent me down this path of, of behavioral finance, which is sort of understanding 
uh, the intersection of mind and markets and how emotions and greed and fear impact our investment and our financial decision making. So that's what I do is I try and uh, I try and decipher the the sometimes scary, sometimes confusing world of of messy human emotions as they intersect with the world of money. It's a very important role and there's a lot of those messy emotions. And I know in our community, a lot of listeners get stuck with things like analysis paralysis. And your last appearance on the show was in 2021 and a lot has changed since that time. So I was wondering if if you've come across any new developments in the world of behavioral finance that you wanted to share today. Yes. So uh, we've we've sort of ping-ponged from extreme fear in early 2020 to extreme greed in the latter part of 2020 and and most of 2021 and then back i'd say to fear and i think you know some somewhere towards moderation now you know i actually have a sentiment index where i where i measure uh sentiment looking at a number of market indicators and you know we were down in the single digits in the in the worst parts of COVID, with you know, with with zero being sort of extreme fear and one hundred being extreme greed, and right now we're we're right in the middle of that range, right? I think we're in a very a, a period of great uncertainty, and so it has been a crazy couple of years, and yet you know, people who've remained consistent, people who've stuck with a plan, um, people who have you know, invested or traded by their rules have done done really well in what has been uh, just a, a wild couple of years. Mm, it has certainly been a challenging environment. And I know it, in Australia, I'm sure in the US as well, a lot of people started investing in 2020 and 2021. So the last few years has been their whole world as investors and they haven't seen a time before that. And so it's been really interesting watching that development over time. One of the one of the cool things about the pandemic is we saw an influx of investors that was absolutely unprecedented in history, sort of, sort of as you mentioned. And and what was neat too was that it wasn't the usual suspects. It was uh, women were over overrepresented, people of color were were overrepresented versus history. And so it was in a way like really wonderful to, to welcome all these new folks to the to the party, right? Uh, but in another way, I, I worry that people aren't learning the right lessons, right? I'm not I'm not sure that everyone that got invested in 2021 was, you know, uh, doing so sensibly. I think there was a lot of get rich quick sentiment then. And, and I hope that, that the new folks who have been welcomed into the fold are, are learning the lessons they should. And, and even if they've had some losses or even if they've had some tough times, are, are learning those lessons. Um, I'm actually doing some research today on, on uh, learning from failure. And I found some really cool articles that, that showed that people who failed and people who succeeded actually tried the same number of times like persistence wasn't the difference the difference was taking those negative those those losses or those failures if you will and learning like taking time to deconstruct them learn the lessons of those times so if you're new to the party welcome like if you've had some you know tough luck in the last year or two take a moment 
uh, learn those lessons, learn what you did wrong, listen to podcasts like this to try and educate yourself. And, and don't just, don't just go back into the fray full force until you've had time to sort of, uh, do the postmortem on what went wrong. Mm. I like the idea of a postmortem, and I've been thinking about that over the last few years. I think I also I read about it in Annie Duke's book, How to Decide, which is really interesting. Are there any other lessons that we should be learning, especially as new investors? Well, I, I think the postmortem is wonderful. I think most people have at least a sort of um, cursory sense of what a postmortem is, right? Like something goes goes wrong. You look at it, you try and diagnose the problem and you say, what can I keep from, from going wrong next time? But there's a concept in behavioral um, finance that I find even more powerful. And that's this concept of a pre-mortem. And I think this is less familiar to most people. And a pre-mortem says, okay, you're 35 years old, right? So you're 35 years old. Here's how you're investing. Here's how your work is set up. And, you know, here are your goals out here. If in 10 to 15 years, you have not reached those medium term goals, what went wrong? So it's like, instead of waiting for that bad thing to happen, instead of waiting for that failure, you pre-experience or you anticipate that failure, right? Like we're sitting here 10 years hence, you didn't reach your goals. What is the likely point of failure? You know, did you take too much risk? Did you not take enough risk? Did you not work with a professional? You know, did you not save enough? Whatever it is, I think you can, I think if you're honest with yourself and if you spend a minute, you can anticipate what might go wrong and then you can take pains to try and correct that. So I think, you know, pre-mortem's powerful, uh, excuse me, yeah, post-mortem's powerful. Pre-mortem is, I think, even more so. Mm, that's a really interesting way to look at it, sort of going, well, what's my end point and what are all the reasons why I won't get to that point? And then thinking today, how can I do something differently so I don't hit all these points of failure along the way? Of course, knowing there's going to be things you don't expect popping up along the journey. And as someone who's an expert in the space of finance and psychology and that middle piece in between that often we struggle to figure out for ourselves, why do you see it as so important as investors and people that are saving and having money goals to understand a little bit about how our emotions are impacting our behavior? Well, um, there's, there's a few reasons why this is so important. Um, one is just because it's so powerful. If you look at something called the behavior gap, right? Like this is the gap between what the market gives us on any given year and what the average investor actually receives, that behavior gap is consistently one and a half to 2% per year. Uh, and, and on many years, it can touch four or 5%. So when you're looking at a diversified portfolio being, you know, seven to 8% a year over long periods of time, the, the, your emotions can cost you between 25 and 50% of your returns pretty consistently. Um, there's not much you can do very reliably to crank your returns up 25 to 50%, but 
but managing your emotions will do it. <clears throat> and so it, it just matters a great deal <clears throat> is one reason. The second thing is it's, it's one of the things that's in your control. You know, good investing is about controlling the controllable. And there's, there's so much that's out of our control when it comes to investing. You know, will there be a war? Will there be a pandemic? You know, will there be inflation? You know, a million sort of variables that are outside of our power. And I find that that's where we spend most of our attention. You know, when, when folks hear that I work in finance, they ask me, you know, what's the president going to do? What's the prime minister going to do? What's the federal reserve going to do? What's the virus going to do? And I have no idea, right? I mean, no, nobody does. And yet our emotions, our behavior, our choices are fully within our control. And so it's not quite as maddening when you focus on something where you can actually move the needle. So, you know, my, my two big reasons are, one, it's just a massive driver of returns. And two, you, you can influence it. You can't influence what the leader of your country does uh, to your economy, but you can certainly influence your choices and your emotions and your behaviors. Given the importance of it, how do we know if our emotions are starting to impact our decisions with money? Because often we don't think about them and suddenly it could go five years and our emotions have changed the direction of our financial future, maybe not for the better. Yeah, so uh, there's a, there's an easy and tough answer to that question, which is they definitely are impacting. <laughs> so if you look at if you look at if you look at the research around emotion and decision making, it's actually fascinating because we can study the decision making tendencies of people who have the emotional processing centers of their brains damaged. So people who literally cannot. Uh, facilitate new emotion creation. And when you look at these people, uh, they're very good at math. Like they're very good at gambling. They're very good at investing, which is sort of fascinating. But what they can't do is pick out which shirt to wear in the morning or decide which flavor of ice cream to have for dessert. Because, because what we find is that every decision has a strong emotional subcurrent to it. So every single decision we make, whether it's what to have for breakfast or you know, what to text our friend or what to wear to work, like all of these things have an emotional substrate to them. And what's fascinating is when I did research for my book, The Behavioral Investor, I found research on um, fMRI studies. So like brain, brain scan studies. And they hook people up to brain scans and they, they show them stimuli around like things that are, you know, highly excitatory, sex, death, religion, politics, you know, all the things that you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. And, and the thing that has the most excitatory power is money. And so every decision we make is emotional but financial decisions are the most emotional. And so emotion is definitely impacting your investments. It's, it's only a question of two things, right? The first is, are you staying out of extreme emotion when making financial decisions, 
right? So like you want to avoid extremes and you want to candidly avoid positive and negative extremes. Because what we find is that emotion tends to color our perception of risk. This is something uh, called the affect heuristic where, you know, the, the mood we're in colors whether or not we see risk. And so people who are emotionally negative in, in, a, in a depressed or a sad emotional state tend to see risk everywhere, right? They're scared, they're paralyzed, like you talked about earlier. And then people who are in a euphoric or a very positive emotional state, they tend to miss, they tend to like blow through red lights all the time and, and sort of miss any risk signals. So avoid emotional extremes is, is one thing. And then the other thing I would say is, is let emotion work for you. You know, there's all this cool research on things like, I mean, I hate this word, but I don't know how else to explain it, like a vision board, like, you know, just a very sort of visual, a visual depictor of your goals. That's something like a vision board or even like a picture of your children or a picture of your family can help you to stay on the right path when making investing decisions. And that's because you're using emotion to your favor. You know, I had, um, when I went on, went on my own, uh, sort of my entrepreneurial journey of quite a few years ago, uh, I left a, a secure job. And, and when I was telling my boss I was leaving and I told him what I was doing, he basically told me that I would never make any money. And like, I, <laughs> he was like, you're dumb. You're never going to make any money. And I, you know, I basically like wrote that on a card and kept it in front of my desk to like make me angry, to make me work hard. And so, you know, things like that are emotion too. So we need to have this sort of one-two punch of not making important emotional decisions where, when we're in a highly negative or a highly positive state and then the other thing is we can use visualization and goals and things to help fuel our drive for more and, and better. Yeah. If we accept that we're never going to be able to fully separate emotions from our decisions, especially if it's to do with money, one of the traps we often fall into is that fear of missing out and when something's been hyped up a lot. And sometimes I see a lot of investors talking about something online and really exciting each other when maybe it's not a great company or a great investment. How do we stop ourselves getting dragged into that fear of missing out trap where we think we have to make this decision now or we'll miss out on this opportunity forever? Yeah, one of the, one of the truisms about finance and investing is that get rich quick and get poor quick uh, tend to be two sides of the same coin. And I think we need to remind ourselves when there's sort of a FOMO type investment uh, that we're considering. I mean, you see this with meme stocks, with crypto, with, with all kinds of things. Uh, there, there, are certainly, there are certainly plenty of people who've made great money. In, in these sort of speculative investments, but there are more people who've been wiped out. And I think we have to be honest with ourselves about that. 
And I think we just have to size our positions. You know, like one of the things that I've done historically is, I mean, I'm, I'm working on my, I'm currently working on my fourth book in, in this space. Okay. So I've, I've written three and a half books on, on behavioral finance and I have a PhD. Like I know, I know all the things that I'm supposed to do and still it's hard for me to do them. And so one of the things that I do is I keep a small amount of money in, you know, what you might call a FOMO account, like a play account. And I do stupid things with it. I mean, I, you know, I, I chase speculative investments and I can do that because it's like 2% of my wealth. You know what I mean? Like, so like if you have that impulse, sometimes it's easier to give into that impulse in a limited way than it is to stop it altogether. And so it's kind of like a cheat meal, I guess, if you will, for, for someone who's, well, you know, into fitness or dieting. Um, it's, you know, sort of a bend, not break approach. So that would be sort of my two pieces of advice. Just realize that, yeah, if there's a lot of upside, there is necessarily a lot of downside too. And, and to sort of bend, not break by having that, that, you know, that 2%, 3% allocation. I really like that approach because it says to yourself, I understand you. I know that you're going to have these temptations. You're only human, but I'm going to do it in moderation so that when you do have these feelings that arise, you are not going to ruin your whole financial future. You're just doing it with a set amount of money put aside for this exact reason. uh, And it's not going to cause financial harm to your, to your goals long term. There's maybe a follow on to that too. One of the things that I found in my research and my writing is that people have a poor recollection of how they did in the market. So we tend to remember most of our winners and forget most of our losers. So sometimes like I'll think on any given year, like in my play account, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm way up, right? Like I'm, I'm way up. I did great this year. And then I really go look at it and I'm like, eh, I didn't do that great. You know, I did, I didn't do as well as I remembered. And that's pretty typical of, of humans. And so if you're going to do this, watch it closely. And I think you'll find what I find most of the time, which is my serious money that I sort of just diversify and forget often does a lot better than the money I'm watching closely and trading frequently and things like that. Mm, It's really interesting because we often talk about a fund manager's performance or our retirement account in Australia. That's our superannuations performance. But we don't always talk about our own portfolio's performance and go and crunch the numbers and see, are we actually outperforming the benchmark or are we underperforming? And I think that's a good trick to look at for that play mm-hmm. money or that FOMO fund. How are you actually going long term with that, that approach? Yeah, I think you'll be surprised and disappointed most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sometimes we think we're a lot better at investing than we are. Isn't that there's something, some research about we all think we're a lot better at driving than we actually are? Yeah, so it it cuts across, it cuts across basically every context. So there's that's called overconfidence, right? There's there's three different kinds of overconfidence. We think we're luckier than we are is is one of the types of overconfidence. So like, you know, 
if, if you ask couples, you know, I don't know what it is in Australia and the US, the likelihood of divorce is uh, approaching 50%. But if you ask couples, like, you know, do you, do you think you'll ever get divorced? Like effectively 0% of them say yes, right? So we think we're, you know, same thing with cancer. You know, do you think you'll get cancer? Do you think you'll, you know, do this? So we tend to think we're luckier than average. We tend to think we know more about the future than average, which is dangerous for investing. And then that third piece is we tend to think we're better than average, like better looking, smarter, uh, you know, better drivers, all, all of this. So the, the three of them together, you know, thinking you're smarter, thinking you're luckier and thinking you know more about the future. It's a pretty pretty deadly combo when it comes to investing. Absolutely. And one of the things I wanted to chat to you about, because things feel a little bit uncertain at the moment, and a lot of people are wondering what are gonna, what's going to happen, especially in the Australian economy. And they're trying to make those decisions of, should I keep investing the same amount? Should I invest a little bit less? Should I change my strategy? Do you have any sort of broad ideas for how people can manage that feeling of uncertainty when it's sort of a, a constant ongoing feeling? Yeah. So the, the feeling of uncertainty never goes away and people hate uncertainty even more than they hate bad news. Like there's all this interesting, there's all this interesting research on uncertainty. If you'll permit a, a brief digression, like during world war two, Right. During World War II, uh, London was bombed constantly. And the outlying areas like the suburbs around London were bombed like one tenth as much. And then after the war, the doctors came in and they're, you know, everything's getting rebuilt. And, and part of that is taking care of people's psyches. And what they found is that the people in the suburbs had way more stress and way more ulcers, like way more physical manifestations of stress than the people in London. And this was surprising to some because London had been so much harder hit. But what the folks in the suburbs and the exurbs were dealing with was the uncertainty. In London, you knew you were getting hit. Like, I mean, every single night, like clockwork, the bombs were coming. So you could prepare, you, you know, black out the room, get hunkered down. In the suburbs, you didn't know. You had a one in 10 chance. And we see that in the million other places we don't have time for. But, you know, dealing with this uncertainty, I think one of the best things you can do is just automate your process and stop thinking about it and go live your life. Like, you know, automate the process, automate the process of, of saving X amount every month, automate the process of, it, of investing it in a way that's sensible, and then go do something else. Because, there's always going to be something, you know, in, in 2020, it was COVID in 2021, it was meme stocks. Now it's inflation and recession and, you know, war in Ukraine. And like, I, I promise you next year will be something. Uh, uncertainty is just the cost of admission. And the best thing that you can do is to not focus on it by turning your attention somewhere else. Because if you, if you try to wring certainty out of markets, you're destined for disappointment. Yeah. Then if you try to 
find a reason not to invest, there's always going to be one. Mm -hmm. There's always, as you mentioned, something coming up and inflation's the big story, especially in Australia at the moment. And one of the other things, since I've got you here, analysis paralysis is something we get a lot of questions about often because people are trying to pick between two or three relatively similar ETFs slash index funds and they're just stuck or they're trying to pick a brokerage account when there might be three that do very similar things, but they're just slightly different and it just seems like it's really hard to make that decision. Do you have any strategies for dealing with that? So what folks need to do is save their worry for big ticket decisions, right? So the, the your asset allocation accounts for like 90% of the difference uh, in 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 performance. So to, to sort of back that up, right? Whether you use this type of diversified fund versus that type of diversified fund, it matters almost not at all, right? Versus what is your allocation to stocks versus bonds and, and things like that. So that is a conversation worth giving some thought to. Does one low cost diversified fund better than the other is worth not one minute of your time, right? The, the other thing I would say is, you know, people, people will focus on really small stuff, this brokerage account versus that, like this large cap fund versus the, you know, the other large cap fund. Um, a lot of times, though, this is sort of a red herring or a thing that distracts us from working on ourselves. Because if you want to build wealth over the long term, you should focus on yourself because you and your income are the engine of your wealth. And so if you really are serious about this, you know, get a good enough solution, right? Nothing's perfect, but get a good enough, get a good enough brokerage, get a good enough set of funds and go work on yourself. Go get more education, go get better at your job that is going to drive your wealth so much faster than, you know, trying to pick funds and, and save, you know, a couple of bucks at the margin. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? How often we get distracted by those small things that at the time feel like really big decisions and spend a lot less time on the, the big things like asset allocation and our increasing our income. Yeah, well, in some ways, it's it's like, again, sort of a red herring that takes the responsibility off of us, right? I mean, it's sort of deck chairs on the Titanic, you know, in a way, like, who, who cares? Like, go, you know, go, go work on yourself. But that's hard, right? I mean, people, people like to sort of sometimes... We, we sort of give ourselves a break sometimes or let ourselves off the hook by worrying on worrying about something that gives uh, the appearance of important importance without really requiring much of us as people or not requiring us to change much. And uh, unfortunately, that's not going to do much in this case. When you say go work on yourself, what does this look like in the financial psychology space? What could people try? Yeah, well, go work on yourself. It kind of has has two parts, right? Well, at least two parts. One is go figure out how to make more money. I mean, that's 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 one piece of it. And you know, education is education is highly correlated with with financial success and in developed countries, right? So, and you know, getting more education, getting more skills, more certifications, 
a better professional network. All of that stuff is a piece of working on yourself. You know, another piece of working on yourself, though, is understanding your financial values, like understanding your financial drivers, what motivates you, you know, because each of us, uh, each of us is an N of one when it comes to our financial lives. And like, we grow up in these homes with these rules and these ideas about money that are really so particular to a place and time and context and then we get out into the world, we, you know, fall in love or live with someone and, and have a roommate or a romantic partner and find out that like their rules about money are very different than ours. So like that's part of it too, is just figuring out what are your hangups, what are your drivers around money and, and, and do they need to be the way that they are, right? Like, I think a lot of us sort of uncritically accept the rules we inherit from our parents or our families of origin. And it's only when we bump up against other people with different money scripts that we start to question those. And so just be intentional about picking the, picking the money ideas that serve you and leaving the ones behind that don't. Mm. It's often a change in environment that brings up some of these conflicts and values that maybe we haven't unpacked about our own money story because we're interacting with someone new that might have grown up in a totally different place and mm -hmm. with a totally different experience and they interact with money very differently to the way we do. No, that, that's exactly right. You know, I, I did some research recently. We, we surveyed hundreds of couples in the U.S. and Canada, uh, you know, financial disagreements are one of the leading causes of divorce and separation in, in North America. And we, we talked, we talked to 400 and something couples about what they fight about when they fight about money and the number one people, the number one sort of source of disagreement was, is money best used to enjoy today or to secure tomorrow? And what was so fascinating to me about this was that obviously both are important, right? Like there, there needs to be some, some balance there. Like enjoying today is critical. Tomorrow's not promised. We want to have fun. We want to work hard, play hard. Like I get that. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm coming to you from the beach. I just got off the beach. I get it now. Uh, but then, but then we also have to secure a, a future that is uncertain, you know, and a lifespan that is of uncertain length. And all of that is important too. And so I think though most of us grow up in a family with a money script that emphasizes one of those more than the other. And, and, and you know, we could do this with communication, right? We could do this with uh, sort of individualistic versus collectivistic approaches to money. Like there's there's many dimensions we could do this along, but we, we grow up sort of on one side of the ledger and it's only when we change environments and are exposed to other people and places and ideas that the other side of the ledger starts to come into focus and, and we can sort of strive for, for perhaps more balance. Yeah, because I, I can imagine the enjoy today or secure tomorrow, uh, what works best is probably something in the middle, but that looks mm -hmm. different for every person and every relationship as well. Yeah, for sure.
And if people are really interested by this topic and some of your research and just learning a bit more about how their emotions impact their behaviour, are there any books or podcasts? I know you've got some great ones as well that you'd suggest they dive into. Yeah, so my, my two books are The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor. Those are my two best books, The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor. Uh, I have a podcast called Standard Deviations that folks can check out. And then if you if you Google Nocturne Capital Reading List, that's a reading list I put together years ago uh, that has some good books. And it kind of breaks it down by category. Like I've got stuff on women and investing. I've got stuff on emotion and stress. I've got stuff on, you know, sort of behavioral finance basics. So that's a good reading list with with sort of lots of lots of fun avenues to pursue. Absolutely. I've read The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor, and I can vouch that they're a great read. So if any listeners are interested, I would definitely check them out. I know they're available on Booktopia in Australia and probably Amazon and a few other places. And Daniel, before we wrap up today's conversation, I was wondering if you had to leave listeners with one lesson or takeaway, what would that be? Hmm. Okay. One lesson is let your why teach you how. You know, one of the things that I'm always fascinated with is how much better people do when their goals are vivid. So everything I ask people to do in terms of invest and think long term and all of this sort of thing is psychologically difficult, right? Super difficult psychologically. And the only way we're able to tell ourselves no, you know, to all of the goofy things we want to do with our money is to have a bigger yes sort of burning inside of us. So find that life you want to live, right? Find that life you want to live, make it vivid, make it personal, make it yours and keep it out in front of you and let that drive you to make better and better financial decisions. I love that. That is a great way to wrap up today's conversation, Daniel. Well, I'll include links to all of your books in your website and the book list in the show notes below. And if listeners want to get in touch with you, I know you're quite active on social media, so I'll put links to that. And thank you so much for joining me. Uh, afternoon for you, morning from me, all the way from California today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode. If you're keen to learn more, head on over to Rask Education and take one of our free money and investing courses. You could even become a Rask Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week. Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey? 
but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.